I shall call this my presidential manifesto. I have been sitting here and I've been writing down some really important things and I just decided it's probably more material if I just talk about it because there's different signals are I guess accessed when I just talk rather than having to think to write. Though I love to write. I mean it's great having a pen in hand and you know going through the motions um, to really put down the information that's floating around in my head. Um, but yeah, talking is just more fluid. It's more fluid if less inhibited. Though there are times where I, I'm at a loss for words, and I believe that that's just normal. Normal, because there's just some things that can't be put into words, you know? There's just some things that... It's hard to express. So, with that, I will get into my conversation with myself. At least I'm recording it, right? So, I can say that I'm not talking to myself, but to you, listener, whoever you might be. Um, whoever might come across this and find it as interesting or relevant or maybe even crazy, um, which is possible. Uh, I never claim to be um, normal, but really believe that crazy is as crazy does. And if you want to really look at the true definition of crazy, it's to continuously do the same thing over and over again and expect different results and I have never been one to do things the same. I'm flexible. I'm flexible with my my view, I'm flexible with my my wisdom and my knowledge and my understanding and my willingness to exert energy and spend my valuable time and attention and I'm a pretty accommodating person. But then I have values as well. So I'm not here to, I guess, compromise those values for anything. Because really my value system already has it pretty well determined what it is that is worth a damn for me, you know? Um, I'm following a trend and a through line of those things that, you know, call to me. Those things that make sense to me. and I don't want to compromise those sorts of things. You know, for sake of anything. So, with that, I shall dive into this little rabbit hole. I hope that this 
will come across as being encouraging and gentle and educational. I mean, I'm kind of using my, my logistical skills and my oratory skills, my critical thinking skills, and my capacity to perform innovative tracking. Uh, this is what I refer to as hitching together and aligning and tuning with that, that through line, that, that an intentional through line that pierces through anything and everything. And I like to follow it and recognize the patterns between it and, and the variables and the variations and the differentiations and the degrees of separation and I'm constantly weighing and measuring everything. Not necessarily on the scale of like I have a ruler and I measure everything. I mean, though I do have that, like there's a running tape measure in my mind that measures everything from these various points, you know, uh, uh, width and breadth and depth and length and uh, these sorts of things uh, and circumference. But again, you know, beyond that, that physical matter um, measurement, uh, like transcending into the phases of things, the measurements of phases of things, and, and the, the measurements of, of the, the substance by which the, the lower vibrational patterns of, of dense matter um, leading up to high points, just pure energy, you know, going through the phases of like magnetism and uh, uh, light energy and then just into that that pure um, not the word that other people would reference in this case but what I like to use the, the, that dark matter um, it is what once you pass through the light you reach this other height I suppose is what you could say um, in which the, the, the vibration and, and the energy functions in a way not discernible to the human senses. It's definitely on that spiritual plane and can really only be uh, fathomed but not fully grasped. Um, if I haven't lost you there, going to kind of explain what that means, it's like, um, you know, the, the seven phases of um, the, the plane of the universe. So we have, you know, matter in its solid and liquid and gaseous forms. Then we have matter that comprises of um, the subtle higher forms um, like radiant matter um, and then even still beyond that the another form of matter which comprises of the the most subtle and, and tenuous matter um, that's not um, ordinarily suspected and then 
we access the, the ethereal substance which connects these matter forms um, and comprises of that which we call the ether. It's, it's a substance, not like slime or goose type substance, but something of substance. Uh, with extreme tenuity and elasticity and, and continuity. It, it permeates everything, within, without, it's, without that, there is nothing. So, it's a good basis for a starting point, right? All things branch out from this ethereal substance the substance of the ether, um, and then from that, uh, based off of its vibration, um, which is a really very defined, um, definable, I shall say, uh, form of, of energy, um, which either in uh, low vibration sequences extends to all forms of matter or into higher vibrations which extend up through the um, the other ends of the spectrum of energy which flows into uh, such concepts as like magnetism and um, electrostatic and uh, sound resonance like rhythms harmonies and then into the light spectrums and on and on and up until as I say we access dark matter um, if you think of the concept of polarity uh, if we have dense solid core matter like um, an, an iron core center a planet then the polarity of that, which would be perceived as the dark matter, would be the encapsulation of that center, that core, um, bound within the, this uh, space of, of void, of non-being non sort of thing. And again, going off on a tangent um, that not very many people could probably follow down. But the point is, is that we have these these levels and these these layers, and some people refer to them as planes of existence, um, in which the basis of what we perceive as reality uh, forms a function that we can grasp and 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 uh, consider and interact with as intelligent beings that we are. Um, but then there's also the spiritual plane. It's, it's a level that is beyond the understanding of just uh, basic intelligence, human intelligence. Uh, we reach and grasp for the conceptualization of, of what that spirit matter, um, the, the uh, eternal kind of I would say pressure um, that kind of like holds everything together 
this spiritual form um, transcends our understanding as far as uh, it's not something that we can like hold tangible in our hand and say this is spirit but we can philosophize like get into um, the philosophies and and the symbolisms and the uh, kind of like the def definition we can we can define these things but to truly know them you know it on a level that words can't express. That's probably why I'm having such a hard time explaining to people um, or to myself, whoever I'm talking to right now. Um, the reason why this all matters and it's a great starting point, um, matter, no pun intended, uh, is the opportunity of return. So, I'm here to capitalize on the opportunity of return. And the opportunity of return, if we're going to give it a name as far as like, uh, well, how do I understand what the opportunity of return is? Like, I like to put it in terms and conditions of forgiveness, right? Like, we are constantly in the ebb and flow of... Um, you know, existence. Um, we oftentimes attribute life to that existence, um, but it do, it goes beyond that. Not just life; it's life and spirit, and 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 mind and body, and and all of these things are like component, and they come together in a cohesive way to truly define what it is that uh, we are experiencing in this reality. And the problem is, is that it's, we're basically falling from grace, right? We're, we're, we're developing this, this graceful wisdom. And, and what the grace is, is just this capacity just to go with the flow, right? Everything is in this constant ebb and flow. And it's so beautiful. And it's all powerful. And it's, it's our riding the wave of our own higher consciousness that we may not always be directly connected to um, but it is us and and it is the part of us that that grace that is benevolently providing for us this this synchronistic signposts that are leading us along the pathway of our incarnation in, in this present tense. And we, we practice that grace with our encounters and our experiences. And we're learning through the process of taking everything in that we perceive and, and not just accepting it at face value, but really truly discerning the information and, and, and taking it in uh, introspectively and oftentimes retrospectively because we don't always think in the moment. Sometimes it comes to us later. Um, reality is not linear. It's not. It, the only thing that is linear is, is the time, which is just the length it takes for us to come into full understanding. So, you know, there's this connection 
right? Between like what we might call, one might call a perfect timing and um, the reality of, of how things are being manifested in the world. You know, some people just seem so lucky. Everything just happens for them in just like perfect timing all the time. It's just that they're aligned and in tuned with that ebb and the flow. And, and they're um, within grace. And then occasionally they fall from grace. But the difference between those who, you know, fall and then, you know, pick themselves up, dust themselves off and start all over again is forgiveness. You know, that's what the opportunity of return is. It's forgiveness. It's forgiveness for, for that fall from grace. And the way that you can, like, truly, like, put this together is, is in that the, within the physical world, what matches the spiritual world is a meditation on what we can perceive that is the law of correspondence. You know, some things are meant to just let it pass, let it go, because it's not for us. But then there's other things that, that come to you, and you have to work to show that uh, within this golden door of opportunity, this new opening of, a, of another access way, kind of like a you know, warp tunnel in a video game that gives you this, this variability. And variation is the ultimate, I don't want to say tool, but it's a through line. It's it's an it's a waypoint. It's it's an, an access. It's kind of like when you meet somebody in a video game, and all of a sudden that creates a checkpoint. So if for some reason you you know you lose your place in the game, you can start back at that checkpoint because you've checked in there, right? And so that's kind of what these variations are. These like different checkpoints that say. Uh, though I fall from grace, I don't have to fall so far because I checked in here and, and I reaffirmed these, these beliefs and these understandings. And, and so as we go through the natural process of ebb and flow, or you can think of it in terms of a ladder that you're climbing and then you fall a couple rings and then, you know, you go back up again. Uh, you don't fall so far. You don't fall all the way to the start. Um, you only fall so far as you have led yourself to astray, you know, from, from that correspondence between that which you are striving for, your intention, your best intention, and your best version of achieving your intentions, and that shitty version of yourself that is within all of us. We all have that capacity. And, you know, the ebb and flow of life naturally leans us towards that shittiness. Um, but those checkpoints make that shittiness not be so far away from the relation to, you know, your highest and best potential, you know, your best version. So these, these signposts, right, of your, that your highest consciousness are, are creating these checkpoints, you know, um, they're on the road of your path and they're markers that, that let you know and let others know where you are. And 
the only way to really to work with those things intentionally and, and to really hold on to them is to, to practice. Practice extensively. Um, to to cultivate what it is um, that is driving yourself to learn to learn and and to to grow and to access that opportunity of return or to forgive yourself for for perhaps in the sense Falling from grace and then letting yourself and others down because of it. You know, that we all do that to each other. And society and the world's really harsh and they don't always like to forgive. They they like to hold grudges, you know. And so people can't move on from that and well that causes a lot of our societal problems, you know, because people are so busy trying to fight off this false image of, of who they once were when they made that oops mistake that society tries to conform and hold them to and stigmatize them by. Um, and it allows no room for growth or opportunity or, or for a best practice to improve upon those, you know, that, that fall from grace. Um, we're all the, you know, fallen angels. We, we reach these heights and, and then we fall and, and we have to have that opportunity, that space that's given, you know, that opportunity of return, um, not only granted for ourselves within ourselves, but granted for the other, those who we encounter, the other giving them, granting them opportunity to return, um, in the form of forgiveness, it, it allows space for them to be able to climb back up that ladder, you know? Um, but this takes practice and practice is expensive. Well, I'm not just talking in terms of like practice, like it's going to cost you money, but practice costs you time and attention and your time and your attention are valuable because your time and your attention are what leads to the thoughts that you have, the emotions that you, you feel, and thus the behaviors that you, you undertake and, and the habits that, that you form. And so uh, if you're practicing self-defense constantly and, for, and defending yourself because the lack of forgiveness and the stigmas that society is placing upon you for an oops mistake that you made at one point in time that is no longer who you are because you've learned from your mistake, right? You're, you're just, you are beating a dead horse. You're, you're wasting valuable time and energy concerning yourself over those things which are beyond your control. That is the past. And we can't access the past and, and change what it was because then we wouldn't have our present knowledge of now to even know to go back to change it, right? So when you think about in terms of like time continues to flow in one direction, it's not necessarily time that goes one way. It's our attention can only go in one direction. You know, it has to constantly be progressing. Um, it can't go back to once you know something, you can't unknow it, right? 
So that's what time's measuring. Time is measuring the, the development and, and the growth of your attention. And, and we have just formulated a unit of measurement by which to place upon that to uh, be able to quantify our, our instances of attention and our, and our uh, points of reference for which we are higher in consciousness or lower in consciousness or we're more aware or we're less aware. Um, and those sorts of things are really not... Uh, I guess, really talked about in society. And so, of course, we don't know how to use it. It's like a muscle. If you don't use it, you, you, you don't gain it. You know, you can't build up anything. Um, but society doesn't, you know, respect that or appreciate or value it. And so, therefore, they don't take the time to learn it. Um, and then those who do learn, and maybe not necessarily, like, the true truth about it, but they, they learn how to access it and, and manipulate it and they become selfish and, and self-centered to the point where they tap into it and utilize it for their own selfish gains and benefits without benefiting the other, and then you know, corruptibility comes. But this is the thing, is like power is power. You can't, you know, you can't change the value of power. All you can do is use it for either good or for evil, you know? And society tends to use things for the more evil side but those people have a really big fall for grace that they're going to be experiencing and i would not want to be them when revelations hits and not revelations like the bible you know but like revelations your own personal revelations like you have to come to terms with everything that you have done in your life as far as falling for grace and i really hope at that point in time you have cultivated the practice of opportunity of return and thus cultivated forgiveness. So if the Bible's right about anything, it's that. So coming into correspondence. Correspondence is the law that allows for the pearls of grace and guidance to be in the right place at the right time so that we, we can know that we are going in the right direction. Progress. Reality is not linear. So when it hits us, it, it can appear totally random. I love to embrace the random because I'm embracing reality. But events in, in our brain, when we try to quantify it, we look at it in this, this linear aspect. We base it off of our measurement of time, which we've constructed for ourselves so that we can formulate some sort of uh, capacity to control the energy flows that are happening around us, right? Um, everything happens in perfect timing, right? Um, so these random events occur and we call them serendipitous happenstance and they can have true meaning and really inform us. And, and if we recognize what that is, what, what we're being informed of, there is an interdependence of all things. Everything is connected. There's no separation. There's degrees of separation, but everything's still connected, right? And there's multiple relationships by which those connections exist between people and places, things, even times, whole periods of times, and events like significant or insignificant events. So nothing is more effective in the practice of living than to achieve 
an intentional learning of what the best practices are that we are required to manifest the life that you are meant to live. That high point of grace that you're striving for, which, which really truly can only be like defined in the reality sense of the, the super consciousness, but the ever present awareness that we have as human beings with intelligent minds, you know, discerning and perceiving the world, this, this requires from us intention and effort. We have to set our intentions and we have to put forth effort. The intentions is kind of like that marker that says, this is where I am going. This is my guidepost, you know? Um, and the effort is just the movement towards that with intention. So you're moving towards this guidepost with intention and, and, and you're coming into grace. You are becoming your best version. And when you do that, everything else just kind of falls to the wayside. It's not to say that life won't throw curveballs at you. And really, just depending on, you know, perfect place and time and, you know, the, the things that you're putting yourself into, you know, these types of scenarios, these encounters, these experiences, different things are going to happen. And, you know... <sighs> You're not going to stand in front of a train that is moving fast towards you and expect that the train is going to jump off its tracks so it doesn't hit you. You are going to be the one that's going to have to jump off the tracks so the train doesn't hit you because it's going full force. It has its one direction. It has its one speed and the, the capacity for that speed to be slowed down to a dead stop to not hit you, which is a body immovable takes so much time and takes so much energy and so much force that it doesn't have that capacity. We can engineer as much as we want, but a dead stop with a fast-moving freight train is not going to happen in short distance and short time. It takes time. It takes distance. It takes these things, this, this space for, for reactions to occur that can stop the flow of force. And there's just not enough time. But for you, your, your simple body that you have total, utter, complete control over can easily hop off the track and the fuck out of the way. And then we don't have a problem. So you think of that in terms of like, you know, how do I know where I should be and where I ought to not be? Well, you just... Become aware of the world. Understand that, you know, every action has a, has a reaction. You know, every, every force has, has a, a, a flow and a rate, you know. And, and, and every innovation has a capacity. Every, every technology has, has a pathway and has a process. And come to understand those sorts of things. And then you begin to realize, like, timing. And that's what all these things are. It's just different types of timing, different rates. You learn those rates and then you can understand, you know, your rate and compare, contrast, right? And the correspondence between them, you can capitalize on certain rates to be able to improve your own rate. Hell, if I was smart enough and I wanted to get somewhere, I could jump onto that train and use the rate force function of that train's capability to move, which is far faster than what I would be able to do. And I can get places in like super short time. 
a lot faster than I could if I just had to walk, especially over long distances. So when you think about capitalizing on these sorts of energies and these, these processes and these progresses and these forces and these forms of energy, you realize that your intention is to utilize these things. The universe wants you to use it. Please use me. <laughs> use me for all that I'm worth and all that I'm good for, you know? Um, and make it so that we help the other. And because that helps us to, to make space, you know, and the opportunity of return. If I give without the expectation of getting, because I wouldn't even be able to come up with a fucking great rate of return that I would want to have on something that I invest in. I expect that I'm investing in something so that it can increase its value so that in the, the perfect timing for myself, the right value investment will return to me in the way that I need it at the time. Trying to define it is like trying to control the universe and we don't have control over that. We have control only over, over ourselves. So, looking into this division of this whole wonderland, there really is no no separation there's no line of demarcation there's no way to say this is where that ends and this begins every great lyric every new beginning comes from some other beginnings end there's just this constant flow there is if you're going to call it something a gray area where you know things interact with each other and fuse and and bind and bond and form um but if we are to conceptualize the 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 variations the the variabilities of things we can uh, define it as such there's the divine there is the soul there's the astral and there's the etheric and these four are what make up the whole wonderland. And so when I think about those things as being like that's that's how I can recognize which which plane I'm on, which which aspect I'm flowing in and out of at any point in time. Um, it, I become you know more powerful because of that. So I feel like the law of correspondence is definitely one of my most favorite and important. Because it says that there will always be something that is visible or observable in the physical world that will explain if you have open eyes and open ears, will explain how things operate universally in all worlds. I consider myself not of this world. 
I'm of many worlds. I'm in and out of consciousness constantly. I'm rooted in, in one world. And, and my other foot is rooted in another. And I feel myself carrying those two with me as, as my equal portion of balance. But at the same time, I'm, I'm transcending even those worlds. But I'm taking them with me because as I grow and they come with me, they shall grow too. Correspondence for me is a practice, a practice in transcendence of opening to that higher guidance from which I derive meaning from my meditation on life. That meditation is this, this great perception of the great knowledge. Um, that I can access when I reach a sufficiently high enough vibration and I can begin to download wisdom through meditation and in the physical world wait for confirmation. See, the presence of the phoenix is a correspondence. One that lets the builders of the future know that the project has wings and it would fly if they so choose to. So how I cut into this conversation probably seems completely abstract. Um, but let me just say that there's no hard and fast division that can be made between physical, mental, and spiritual planes. The terms that I'm describing here are being freely used, <laughs> maybe, maybe poorly explained, um, but I'm using it as an aid in, in the thought in the study, the variations of degrees and forms of universal activity in life. And what I'm leading to here, what my intention and my guidepost is, is that when you're independent like me, it's really hard to work for others. And what I mean by that is that it's really hard for me to don't take offense to this because it's not meaning to be rude or vain or anything, but just so that you can understand how much of a struggle it is for me to explain this. It's like, I can't can't dumb myself down to put this into terms the six-year-old can understand. You 
not truly understand, not in the ways that I understand, because you can't just know that way. You can't know because somebody else tells you. You have to know because you go out and find it. You discover it. You learn it. Your damn self, you know. And then there's that saying that says, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, then you don't really understand it. To an extent, I believe in that. But, but knowing what I know, there, there is no single intervention that is going to work for all of us to bring us into awareness. Okay, there's just not. In all seriousness, you know, the, the complaints of the world, should they be treated by some healer? It should not be believed that all the disturbances of the world can be removed with some perfect vibration because everything's in and out of flow constantly. I once read something that's like truly beautiful and I want to share it because I think it's kind of sums up what I was trying to explain here, you know, maybe a little bit better than what I've been able to explain. So here it is. The atom of matter, the unit of force, the passage of time, the mind of human, and the being of the archangel are all but degrees in one scale. All are fundamentally the same. The difference or variability is solely a matter of degrees of separation and rate of vibration. Vibration per passage of time equals frequency. Now aligning and tuning to the appropriate frequency is really what learning is all about. And all the divisions of what we conceive as reality they shade into each other. And these concepts are really only adopted merely as a means of convenience for study and thought. Mainly because it's important that we talk with each other about the vibrations of a certain kind to explain to them in the terms and conditions by which we can understand them so that others might grasp and fathom the whole, right? Because no one person can ever know everything, but everyone knows something. And when you put those together and you connect the dots, you know, you attach that to that through line that permeates through everything, then you become aware of how to stimulate the flow of energies so that when we're in that ebb and flow, we can ride it like a wave, right? It's like, oh, I feel myself, uh, you know, I'm beginning to ebb and I want to, to still maintain my momentum so I can cut hard in one direction based off of 
you know, the forces in my capacities, you know, like riding a wave and you're on a surfboard and, and you cut and you move that center within yourself to, to follow through in another direction. And, and suddenly your ebb turns back into a flow and you're just going another direction. That's like master craft right there. It's a, it's a focus of energy and will and the ability for achievement. But at the same time, it's, it's a stimulated energy. It's an excitation. It supports that desirous communication. The, the one that embraces the general disturbances of life. And moves within the, the systems of our physical plane. It plays with it. Plays with the energies. You know, not just electric and chemical and magnetism, but intellectual as well. So that leads us to the concept of <laughs> who knows, who knows, who knows. Not exactly sure where this particular recording has cut out. Damn it if that happens. And I'm sure for a reason, so I'm not going to worry about it too much. But definitely the point that I want to get to is that all these things are leading to me being able to explain how people can intentionally shift shift the paradigm of the social constructs in order to change the world and those who live in it. And that's what I'm here to do. I am a guide. And I'm learning along the way as much as any of the rest of us are learning. I don't know everything. I don't claim to know everything. But I know what I know. And I'm trying to put it into so many words so that people can come to know me and trust me, believe in me, and have faith. Because when those things happen, you're granting me that opportunity of return. And I'm on the rise from a very big fall from grace. And I have the potential to reach tremendous heights. And I know so long as I continue to grant opportunity of return to others whom which I encounter, that I'm granting myself the space for that return opportunity of return to come back to me. So as I forgive myself, I forgive others. And so as I forgive others, I forgive myself. 
And in that, I'm letting go of the negative energies of the past that can no longer hold me to that vibration. And I am working up to a higher frequency, a higher pitch. And at that higher rate of vibration, and I become more and more aligned and in tuned with the capacity to access and to manifest within this reality. Even in this moment, I forgive myself for shaking my head in denial, not because I don't believe in myself, but because I don't believe in others and their capacity to believe in me. Shake my head to say, the world's not ready for this. The world's not ready to understand the things that I'm saying. I'm not saying it right. I'm not explaining it enough. And then I realize that right there is my, my very fault, my very fall from grace. That I'm not even doing what I said I would be doing, providing the opportunity of return. I trust myself, thus I trust others. And as I trust others, they can trust me too. That denialism that I feel is this sense of stigma, stigmatized The things by which society has stigmatized me by. And maybe not necessarily me specifically, but the way that I am, the, the powers that I have, the beliefs that I have, the work that I do, the things that I know, the wisdom that I share, these sorts of things society doesn't always agree with. And change is terrifying. They would much rather maintain the status quo because it does not require anything for them but just to accept. And that seems easier, even though it is the greatest struggle. It's the reason why we struggle. Because people just take it up the ass every fucking day and they don't even enjoy it. Status quo has got to go, and the only way to do that is to shift the paradigm. And everything that I've been leading up to is to initiate a collective cultural shift of the paradigm of the whole of humanity. The human element to the social construct and the spiritual being to become in line and in tuned with an ever more healthy, sustainable, just, and peaceful world. This shift is a paradigm change. from one worldview to another. And that in and of itself is valuable to people. So I've just 
spend a lot of time talking up to where I'm trying to lead to and I still haven't reached it and I'm pretty sure my time is just about up with this particular recording. <sighs> Though I lost my way somewhere along the path because the recording glitched out and stopped, I have no idea what you missed out on, but I'm sure it's irrelevant anyway. There's enough of it here that if it matters to you it'll make sense and if it makes sense, then you're going to be able to put it to good use. It's proper intended use. That which only you know if you take the time to really truly assess what that is. The struggle of life is to conquer stress. By using stress as a learning opportunity to develop greater structural changes in the brain that optimizes the functionality to gain better control of one's emotions, behaviors, thoughts, and thus our worldview. When you look at things in terms of a great pyramid, at the base, there's our habits. Above that, behavior. Above that, emotion. Above that, value system. Above that, our thought process. Above that, our attitude. And above that, our outlook. And at the very tip top, hovering above all of that, is our worldview. Our worldview and our outlook is the purpose of all else. Our attitude and thought process is, is our expenditure of time. Our value system and our emotions is our expenditure of energy. And our behavior and our habit is our work. And then when you look at the other aspect, as above, so below, the bottom of the pyramid, or the direct mirrored reflection of it, we have work, then we have energy, then we have time, then we have personal and collective gains, and then hovering at the tip, the end of this, is the seed of change. Personal and collective gains and the seed of change is the purpose of all else. Time is our attitude and thought process. It's our valuable time or our wasted time. Energy is our value system and emotion or motion. These are the things that are out of our control, but we can manipulate them and work with them and capitalize on them. Just like I'm going to jump on the train to get that far distance because I can get there much faster riding on that than I can if I walk. And then work. That's our behaviors and our habits. And so when you see all of these things just flow into each other, and each one of them represents a different section, the purpose of all else, as above, so below, worldview and outlook, personal and collective gains and the seed of change, these are our purpose of all else. The things that are in our control are our outlook, our attitude, our thought process, our value system, our emotions, our behaviors, our habits, the things, even our work. The things that are out of our control sometimes include our work, but it's our energy and our time. And then the actual true end result of the personal and collective gains, because there are variables beyond which we can control. But we can work with those things, we can manipulate them, we can capitalize on them. Our worldview plus the seed of change equals our intention. And the law of correspondence is the way to manifest in this world. 
that which speaks of the ether is a substance of extreme tenuity and elasticity, pervading all universal space and acting as a medium for the transmission of waves of energy such as light, heat, electricity, and etc. The ethereal substance from a, forms a connecting link, a through line between matter and energy and partakes of the nature of each. Matter and low is low vibration and energy is high vibration and within that we exist within the subdivisions of the ethereal plane I hitch to the through line be well shifting the paradigm of the social construct to change the world and those who live in it time in and of itself is valuable to the people but people lose time dealing with the things beyond their control so the enormous societal problem we are not solving, but ought to be, is that we need to redeem the time. The primary driver of change is behavior. But what changes our behavior? It is the way that we think we see the world. Based on what we see, we behave a certain way. Because what we see and how we choose to see it. Our choices, our attitudes, our behaviors are all led from the emotions that we feel. And nowadays we are seeing a lot of things that are based off of the emotion of fear. So we think we're in danger constantly and and now everyone is stuck in this constant chronic stress mode and everyone is stressed out and it's out of control people are reacting to life in the fight or flight or freeze mode rather than acting according to their own best intentions and we wonder why there's so much problems in the world people are looking for a leader, somebody to step up and say, hey, I have a solution. I have a game plan. We can do this and things will get better. Just follow me. Trust me. I know what I'm talking about. But people are such denialists. They don't want to believe that anything is possible because it's a scary thing. It's a totally mind shattering experience to open up to the world of possibility when you start thinking of all of these different things that are in potentiality you can gather this sense of, of true beauty and, and it's the way in which you can find yourself because you can grasp that real connection to the universe and, and feel a part of it and where you connect. And this is, is an incredible feeling for people. But some of us don't go far enough down the, as they call it, rabbit hole. And then there's those who keep going, maybe a little too far, and this is where things start to get really scary and, and people tend to panic. 
and a lot of us go through it and in oftentimes people call it a psychological breakdown because things in reality are not lining up with what your new form of understanding is is comprehending right you've opened up to a whole new world of other things that you did not know and now trying to make sense of all of that you're literally breaking the construct of your connection with reality that was based on uh, what you did not know and now you know and it's common knowledge and you can't unknow these things you have to find a way to come to terms with all of this information and, and grow right and society tends to stigmatize this this psychological deconstruction of of your connection to the world whereas you 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 die unto your old self and then you're reborn um, from those ashes as a newer better version of yourself society thinks that uh, you're broken you're crazy right and that you must be isolated and you have to be numbed and dumbed down by providing you with medication that cuts off all your senses and your receptors and and those are the things that are are, are your only components by which you can discern reality and so they're shutting it off and and you have no no way to to translate the language of of the universe that is speaking to you to help you make sense of this new world view and, and understanding. And so, you know, they stigmatize um, psychological deconstruction and, and miscategorize it as mental illness. And then they pop you full of a bunch of pills and they push you in a corner and they try to have to deal with you because you're broken. That's wrong. We're destroying the, the healers and the seers and the priests and the shamans of our society because we're formulating this stigmatism on top of them. Now granted, not everybody can fully come into their own uh, by themselves. They need to have guidance from others to be able to, to safely get through this process. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's always somebody there holding your hand but rather you depend on the knowledge and the wisdom of, of other people who have been through similar experiences or who have a, an understanding of something that you're, you're coming into the knowing of um, and which you can tap into. Like whether this by, be by books or by people or music, you're reading into those sorts of things to re-inform your understanding and, and gather a better sense of reality and where you are in the world and ground yourself in the terms of, of who you are and where you are um, and when you are, because where you are and when you are is who you are. <laughs> That's the one true reality. So, I feel very sad for our world, and our, our world in the terms of the shared reality that we have, right? Because we're, we're closing the doors of opportunity of return, and, and we're condemning people to live in a psychological hell because you're making it so that they can never come to terms with reality. You're giving them no way back. You're not leaving any breadcrumbs. And, and you're shutting down the receptors by which these people can even attain this understanding of the new level of consciousness that they've achieved as, as a growing, developing brain. And then, and then we contradict ourselves in the scientific society that says that I want to understand the brain and how it works and, and where all the connections are made and, you know, how can we have such a big brain but we don't know how to use it all and tap into it? It's like almost a waste. 
but the fact of the matter is is that we're evolving into that you know we there was a point in time when we could access other parts of our brain but you know society and consciousness and civilization changed our value system and so no longer needed those things um but the primal instincts are still there fight or flight is still existent you know we just use it in a different way um, but it still has the same physiological effects on us because our brain hasn't been trained through experiences encounters how to truly manifest control over this body that we have it's our vessel you know it's like our brain is the the puppet master and our bodies are just our puppets and but these vessels can guide us through life and get us places and do things and huh, to be human is to feel these flesh bags have amazing senses and capacities to experience and, and, and in that way it's very beautiful but we've lost that connection of the mind, the body, and the spirit by which we can have the full actualization of true beautiful living and, and society stigmatizes it. Society will say you're crazy if you don't conform to the status quo which is doing the same thing over and over and over again Though the true definition of crazy is to do the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. We're never going to get anywhere worth a damn if we continue to hold ourselves down by these, these limitations of saying that we just need everything to stay the same. And if it does, then, then we can get used to it, right? And, and once we get used to it, then, then, then we'll know how, how to deal with these things when, when it happens, right? But that's not how our brains work. That's not how our bodies function. We're, we're adaptable, malleable beings. We are, are these beautiful creatures that have heightened capacities. And, and when we set our intentions, we are capable of incredible things. I mean, look at people who are athletes, you know, Olympians. These people can make their bodies in their minds sync up and do incredible things super genius people can do incredible things when they set their mind to it they have the capacity to formulate and calculate things instantaneously which seems completely unattainable for some people but the fact is is that we have all of these massive capacities but we suppress them by our need to conform to the status quo of change is a bad thing that's what the status quo's mission statement is change is a bad thing stay the same because if it's not the same then you're crazy when we all know that crazy is as crazy does and if we did things today the same as we did it 300 years ago, we would not have gotten very far. We probably wouldn't be alive. If at some point in time between then and now, we didn't make significant change. And if it wasn't this, like pulling each other and temper tantrum, dragging our feet, not wanting to change this whole time, we could have gotten a lot fucking farther than we are right now. You want to understand the human brain? Stop suppressing it. Stop conforming it. Stop trying to make it out to what it's not. 
You cannot define something by the terms and conditions of your limited understanding. You have to step outside of your understanding in order to even open yourself up to the capacity to fathom what it is that you are trying to interpret. Science has always been about trying to interpret. But the problem is, is that society has conformed scientific interpretation with religious, re, religious, religious terms and conditions. Meaning that we have a belief system and we have to stick to it. Because anything that falls outside the lines of that is not in line in tune with the belief system. And therefore it can't be real. Or we can't accept it. Because if we do accept it, then that means our entire concept of the construct of reality is breaking before our very eyes. And then we wonder why people cannot make sense of the world. Because they're trying to conform their religious belief system with this attempt to develop and grow in to a new form of belief and understanding. I'm not saying belief, believing in things is bad. What I'm saying is that blindly trusting and blindly having faith in something without questioning what it is that you're believing, then you are crazy. You are the dysfunctional people. And I'm not trying to say you're bad. And I'm not saying there's no opportunity of return for you, meaning that you have no way to be forgiven because how dare you. It's not like that. It just means that we're all in different starting points, right? We all have different starting points in our world. But the point is, is that they're all starting points. And from that, we're supposed to be on this great journey that we develop and we grow into a higher form of understanding. And, and, Every day is a new start. It's a new starting point every single day. And as soon as you learn something, guess what? You're at a new starting point. Even if you weren't intentionally trying to learn that and you learned it by accident or through experience, guess what? You're at a new starting point. We are constantly being redeeming the time, right? And that redeeming of the time is dying into the old self. Bye-bye, old self. Love you. Thanks for the good time. And you're reintroducing yourself into the newer, better version of yourself. And accepting in, the, in every moment of growth and development and change that you're just like, wow, this is the new me. I like me. This is great. I feel good about myself. And you know what? If you don't feel good about yourself, then really think about it. Like, what can I improve? What should I improve? What ought I improve so that I can feel better about myself? If I'm looking at the mirror, not just the mirror that reflects back the image of yourself, but the mirror that you see in other people and other things. That form of intelligence that you can see within others that, that comes out in them to reflect to you like who you are as a person where your intelligence lies it's kind of like fishing you know you're, you go out and have these encounters and these experiences with people places and things and, and you're fishing for results you're fishing to to find that reflection of yourself so that you can come into better understanding of who you are create a new starting point and move on from there growth and development constantly but we're stigmatized by society saying, um, you know, it's only okay to be to have religious fervor, <laughs> but but you cannot have this this spiritual awakening unto yourself through the manifestations of meditation, like spiritual 
uh, alignment and attunement is not a religion. Well, it's not a religion in the sense of like, here's a book of instructions and follow them to the T or you're going to burn in hell. It's nothing like that. It's saying like, I am on my path of grace and though I shall fall, most certainly, because I'm human, it happens. I shall die into my old self and resurrect as a newer, better version of myself. I'm always in this constant incarnation. That's the way, that's the path. That's the Tao, if you want to call it that. Whatever name you want to give it to it. And even when you look at like the other religions like Christianity or you look at Catholicism, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, like all of these, they all have aspects. And they're all just very beautiful, unique, custom ways of going about and living a beautiful life. But it's when people become so conformed to it that they don't allow other people to seek their own form of beautiful way of living that religion turns into corruption. All good things can be bad. Duality, polarity. And so, where I feel our, our hitch, our glitch in the system, is that everybody is under this delusion. This delusion that If people are, are trying to not conform, or they're not trying to conform, either way, that they need to be put on some sort of like med medication or some sort of confinement, and uh, where society impresses upon them the, the demands of the social construct of the value system saying that you don't meet our definition of sanity. Uh, and then push them to the side and hope for the best and, and, and practically doom these people. And we only go to hurt ourselves. The side effects of, of medications are, are just awful. And most of the time, the, the results of those are you're being diagnosed for the symptoms of medications rather than the, the symptoms of your becoming. You know, medication can give you anxiety attacks because you're blocking the receptors of understanding that your, your body as a natural healer is trying to heal itself in these beautiful ways. It's using its imagination and it's using its, its physical systems and its lymphatic systems and it's using its chemical responses and its emotional responses and energetic responses and vibratory responses and frequency responses all to just shift and change and mold you into that that strong, solid core by which you can break free from these agitations and, and where the, the energies of the world are, are, are bothering you. And, and they're not bothering you in the sense they're trying to fuck with you, but they're trying to send you signals so that you can change. It's, it's like seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, right? You don't know where the end of the tunnel is until you see the light. 
and and these these sensations these these energetic feelings that you have or these thoughts that come across your mind are just that light at the end of the tunnel it comes in all forms but is leading you out of this this dark space or this this transitional period for yourself so that you can get to the other side right but society wants to medicate and and pacify people and it causes us to not want to interact with each other and that's the biggest problem because our encounters interactions and experiences are the only way by which we can come to understand what is going on so oftentimes the best way to recenter yourself is to go into a retreat and meditate on yourself and the world and the universe and do it in a very rigorous way. Be honest with yourself and be fully committed. It's the hardest thing that anybody could ever do to, to truly commit yourself to, to meditate upon reality and your place within it, where you are and when you are, that's who you are. But it's the only way in which we are able to stabilize ourselves, that self who we identify with. And once we do, we, we, we have grounded ourselves in a place where we can start having those synchronicities, which are these beautiful signs, like that light at the end of the tunnel that leads us and guides us towards becoming our better version out of the, the, the tunnel of, of dark misconceptions and misunderstandings or the unknown. And then we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. And so... We all have these psychic and healing abilities. But the world makes it so that we just don't have confidence in what is happening to us. There's no one here to conceptualize for us what it is that we're experiencing. and. And society is is cutting us off and stigmatizing us in our in our becoming our best version by by labeling us with mental illnesses. And the the fact of the matter is that all of us have heavy psychological episodes, and sometimes they're they're prolonged, and other times they're they're intense. But we all suffer a psychological crisis at some point in our lifetime and and that's a figure that's on the rise like there's a tremendous amount of us that become disabled because of this and a lot of the times it happens in in our early age and sometimes it happens multiple times as as we just shift in our ages uh, not necessarily meaning our, our age as far as like how many revolutions around the sun we've achieved, but 
uh, our, our age of development, right? The, the era of our understanding. And so the advantage that I am bringing to the table when I talk about myself as a, a guide is that I have a, a cultural context by which society can turn our psychological crisis and, and our sociological difficulties and cast them with the positive light of a silver lining to turn it into something that's, that's going to, to come out of us as a, a better, stronger version of ourselves, where we'll have more abilities as, as a collective humanity in, in the end of our, our, our new beginning. And, and this is a context by which psychological episodes, these, these personal deconstructions, these, these um, psychological deconstructions are not stigmatized, they're not treated as mental illness, but they're not given that, you know, the stamp, like this is mental illness, you're broken, and, and that uh, because of that you're, you're not going to be given opportunities for return. And uh, that separates that person definitively and def definitely from our culture and being able to conform to our culture because our culture says you are outside of us. Um, whereas in, in this, this new cultural context, um, especially for those who, who have uh, visions of the future that is to come, uh, who perhaps know what's happening and have the capacity to heal the rifts of misunderstanding so that our society is no longer broken between our connections of, of communication, right? Effective communication with each other. So we're no longer diagnosing ourselves with these stigmatizing illnesses as saying you're mentally ill, but rather defining the, the, the problem as, as the very source of the solution. You know, when, when you are mentating, you're, you're mentally in a state of, of reconceptualizing your, your mental state and having that come in accord with your physical state and having that come in accord with your spiritual state so that the, the three unite in this, this trifecta. You gotta have a mentor, somebody who's been there, done that, gone through the process. Someone that can guide you, take a hold of, of their attentions with the intention to, to get them to listen and for them to listen to what the person is experiencing. Let them say what they need to say and, and for the, the mentor, the guide, to help the individual to manage it. Manage 
their communication with the universe. And, and having that guide is, is a huge advantage because it, it gives people a place to belong and a sense of community, an involvement that, that gives us a way to gracefully accept what we're going through. And it gives us a means to, to have an outlet for our talents. Now, this cultural, collective cultural shift that I am initiating is to take the very specific details of, of a person's talents. Uh, and in taking advantage of that by creating communities of acceptance. So where people are no longer suppressing themselves to conform to society's need for you to, to maintain the status quo of whatever they consider to be normal, uh, which is the cause of the root problem, is that nobody belongs in that normal state. There's just, normal is not real. It's, it's a, as fluid as anything else. Um, and it's only based off of, you know, who's the one that's got the stick and control to be able to define what normal means. So, if you take that, and you cause your body and your mind and your spirit to, to tell you and for you to listen how to heal yourself by way of... of these communications of your symptoms of, of your human experience and, and take those symptoms as a message that's telling you how to live your life. You can really begin how to, to empower yourself to be something greater than what you were. These out word experiences, the good things that happen, the bad things that happen, the people that you meet, the places you find yourself in, these, these are all things, they're all waypoints, and they're helping us to resolve these traumas of living in a world that forces upon us conformity. society is not successful by forcing conformity. Society and civilization as a whole successful by way of mutual security. That, that common method of taking this totally different approach to solving common problems. People consider psychological breakdowns often as spiritual emergencies, which is good. It's good because, you know, it holds people accountable to their own change. It, 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 
it makes them have to take responsibility and extreme ownership of, of the experiences that they're having. But it doesn't stigmatize them to the point where they cannot be accepted by society that, that they're outcasts. You know, society is, is too hung up on labels and telling people who they are, what to think, what to feel, what to do. Treating us like machines, we're not machines, we're humans. And, and the human psyche itself is a self-healing mechanism that is constantly analyzing and interpreting and incorporating and, and distinguishing and, and reconfirming reality for us. And it takes us in due time to exactly where we need to be in order to work out whatever it is that's going on with us at that particular moment. Typically, when we go through these growth opportunities, we achieve a higher level of awareness of ourself and others, and, and our consciousness becomes more in sync with the, the all-mind, which is the all-encompassing indivisible unity. Because we don't allow ourselves to to self-heal, we are a species that's in crisis. Our environmental systems, our economic systems, the, the fact that we are in this endless war, fighting amongst ourselves. We are standing in between our own survival. And we are denying ourselves the capacity to thrive because we deny our very ingenuity and our knowledge of ourselves and of the earth and our need to depend on one another with interdependence for, for survival and for thriving in, in that that's what creates that, that connectedness between us that helps us to be able to all be on the same page and working towards that mutual security. It reminds me of this, this beautiful beautiful statement by a beautiful mind. We human beings tend to experience ourselves as something separate from the whole we call the universe. This is actually an optical delusion of our consciousness. It's like a prison for us. Our task is to free ourselves from this prison. Doing so by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. This striving for such an achievement is a path to our liberation and the only true foundation of our inner peace and security. Albert Einstein, genius.
when we embrace the random, <laughs> and we discover the beauty, we truly are living the lives we are intended to live. Our social behaviors and our interactions with each other need to satisfy our personal goals and motivations while at the same time um, providing ourselves with the ability to, to perceive and interpret the social cues of other people who are integrating with us and integrating with our mutual securities where we can define these, these cues that occur within our social constructs, uh, a, a, a current set of motivations that can generate responses that, that initiate within us this, this drive. It enacts within us these, these episodes of achievement. It's this relationship um, to our goals and, and that drive to push, which, which satisfies us through our motives and our goals that keep us sustaining ourselves. As we go along and we nurture ourselves through our visions of what's to come, our capacities to self-heal and to grant opportunities of return or forgiveness so others may self-heal. And we got to be fun-loving about it. We got to show each other the ropes, tell each other the the ways in which we can comfort one another and, and to help us along the way. We need to have that face-to-face -face interactions with each other and we need to come into an intimate understanding of death of the old self and the rebirth of the new self. You must ask the question, how did we get here? Because where we are and when we are is who we are. Taking extreme ownership of our own rebirth takes an elevated consciousness and a level of awareness that understands who we are. And to understand that who we are expands. And, and our expansion has to encompass a, a, a broader circle of compassion that, that goes into the spiritual and the ethereal and the physical matter and the energetic forms, body, mind, and spirit, and to understand that that is something that exists within everything that matters. And we go into that understanding and, and we really assess the information and then we come back with, with a, a deeper understanding 
by going introspective into ourselves and we meditate upon those lessons that we're learning as our self-development is occurring and then we bring that out and we inform other people of the world so that we can help them in their growth and process. Like, no, it's okay. I've been there, done that. Let me tell you a little bit about my experience. Now, no two experiences are going to be the same thing and that's why there is no cookie-cutter solution to anything. But you have to trust in the fact that the universe is bringing to you those things that you're attracting. If you need to learn a valuable lesson, the lesson is coming to you. If you need to have some value increased in your life, that value is coming to you. And it's coming based off of your intentions. You set your intentions, you put that guidepost out there. And then you, you put in efforts to move towards that. And along the way in your path, you are going to find those synchronicities, that a link and hitch in, to that through line and, and link you up and sync you up to the places that you need to be to learn the lessons that you need to learn so that you can grow as a person. And we do that for each other. We're catalysts for change. And as long as you don't deny yourself or, or you refuse to you don't refuse yourself to believe what you're seeing and accept it as, as your your life lesson manifest in that moment, then then you have the opportunity to grow. You you can't resist it. You have to register it, right? And, and the more that you register these, these life lessons, the more you grow and adapt and you become a more conscious individual. And that helps other people because as I heal myself, I'm healing others. And, and as I heal myself, I'm performing work. And, and that work builds up a, a mode of energy that you can't tap into in any other way, right? And that aligns and attunes with the, the perfect timing and the synchronicities start popping off and then all of a sudden that seed of change appears before you, which is a choice to, to, to grow as a person. And, and if you cultivate it and you water it and, and you give it the time and energy and affection and, and attention that's necessary, it will grow from that, that small seed into a great oak. takes a lot of extra work to heal yourself. But that's why I believe that what society should be focusing on is, is to convenience our lives so that survival is more or less assured through our ingenuity and our innovations that help to ensure survival is, is pretty well guaranteed so that we can rest assured we don't have to invest in that. We can instead invest in the thriving capacities of ourselves, which come into the realm of seeking pure happiness and joy, having good thoughtful experiences with one another. Um, and then it comes into the, the, the trifecta of, of positive change, which is uh, personal wellness and care, environmental wellness and, and repair, and then the reversing of negative trends which we've become accustomed to. And so that leads into my next point, which is that the world really only needs to be governed by a few basic principles. Education, innovation, and infrastructure. We educate and innovate to liberate ourselves. And infrastructure is the basis by which we develop things 
that can get us up the reins of the ladder, right? And move us all so that we can collectively be on, on a fairly similar standardized plane of, of living in existence. So that we're all operating, you know, on fairly similar, similar levels. You know, with all the intelligence and knowledge that we have in the world to, to solve problems, we're still suffering from those problems because we have yet to initiate the infrastructure by which those people can capitalize on these solutions that we have created. And so it's really important to develop that infrastructure and implement that infrastructure and to maintain that infrastructure. Otherwise, there's going to continuously be people that are in these perpetual states of survival. And, and we need those people to be on the level with us because we will gain more for our experience through them being self-sufficient, self-sustaining, free and independent people than we ever could from them being dependent upon us. And then us who are at a higher level of achievement in life are kind of forced into slave work to have to sustain and maintain these people continuing to live in survival mode. Um, but it's a trade-off. I mean, they're in survival mode and they're slaves to the system that makes it so that the people who have, who are the haves, have what they have. While the people who have what they have are slaves to the system to that makes it so that the have-nots have not. And so, and and we have to keep things in, in that, you know, imbalance, you know, the, the us versus them sort of mentality because society has yet to embrace the fact that all of us working together is really the whole point and purpose of all of this. Um, and once we do that, you know, we will, we will advance as a civilization by leaps and bounds technologically, you know, innovation-wise, uh, mentally, physically, spiritually, all these things will lift up because we're no longer burdened and, and, and harbored in this um, sea of denial and doubt. You know, we are, are able to expand into the greater realm of understanding of, of, of how we can reach higher heights, right? We're not anchored down to these suboptimal basal existence where we're manifesting in, in the higher realms. Um, and that progress towards that is the intentions of um, the best of us. And now we just need to align and in tune that with the rest of us. And the best way to do that is to educate, innovate, and, and, and develop infrastructure. And so that leads into where my guidance is, is coming to. And I started this like little sequence of the past few um, recordings to talk about my uh, presidential manifesto, which basically is just saying, um, here are ways that we can approach education, innovation, and infrastructure that will improve society and uh, create that cultural, collective cultural shift of uh, the whole of humanity. And it's going to look a little bit different um, than what other people perhaps have suggested to do. And I understand that that's going to make it so it's difficult for some people to accept. But I understand that those who do have the capacity to understand will really truly uh, embrace this 
as a potentiality and they will be able to develop and build off of it. Um, I, I am here as a, a, a guiding vessel. So, I don't have much time left on this recording. Damn it, they only last for so long. I will end this one and I will begin with just the basics of my manifesto. Okay, presidential manifesto. The three key elements. Education, innovation, and infrastructure. If we, if we're, if we educate and innovate to liberate. And I don't really know how to start this other than to say um, I will start with education. Education is important. Uh, we need to have an increase in intelligence in order for us to grow and develop as a species and as a society. Uh, education needs to take on a new value structure and in that the value of education should be based off of the individual who is being educated is worth is worthwhile, right? They, they hold an innate value that is going to lead them towards participation and contribution to the collective society's betterment. And so education is really an investment in tapping into that individual as an infinite resource of human ingenuity. And so when we invest the value in, in um, increasing the education of, of the individual so that they can tap into their own innate ingenuity capacities, um, that's what we should be investing our, our economic um, values into. So to take into consideration, and uh, as it stands now, an individual uh, goes to school through high school and that's what's basically mandatory. Um, but the problem is schools are not an efficient system. They are the most inefficient system and there's no consistency between it and, and then they try to blame it on the kids why they're not really learning when in effect that they're trying to treat minds as if it's a machine that we can operate in a factory and get reproducible results from and that's just not possible. Um, but I know that the capacity of humans and the capability of humans is to, to really, truly, if, if you invest in them and then you tap them as, as a true resource, um, there'll be benefits on, on all spectrums. It, it gives students an incentive to want to learn. Um, when they realize the value of learning. And the value of learning isn't like, um, here we're, a, uh, the federal government is going to give the state money so the state can disperse to the schools and the various districts a certain amount of money to maintain a facility and to have educators and keep them paid a decent wage so that they are willing to sit there and make sure our kids uh, are 
reading the right books and taking the right tests and producing the right statistical outcomes that which we can define and measure by which we can say they're intelligent in their learning. That, there's no accountability to that whatsoever. There isn't. And there's nothing effective about there. There's no actual true incentive behind that. It's basically becomes an, an entire negotiating scheme. It's like um, somebody can say, well, I'm not going to bring that to the table anymore. That's off the table. And, and, you know, I demand more for what I'm doing. And, you know, so you get teacher strikes, you get the government saying we're not going to pay. It's different schools get different amounts of money. You know, one school on one side of the tracks is falling apart and, you know, dilapidated. And the other one is having, you know, fancy pools installed and just like there's there's no equality in it at all and and I don't feel that equality is the right approach to it I feel that the best way to divvy up kind of how this works is to to say that each student is worth a credit system right and and not a credit system in in the sense of like how many warm bodies you have filling the space but each individual citizen is worth a value, right? They have value in society. And to recognize that value and say, we are investing in your future because we know that's investing in our future. So I am going to invest as, as a, a government, federal government, we are going to invest in the individual human element. And, and this child will be brought into this world not in debt from medical expenses of their birth and and they're not going to be in debt for having to take care of the basic necessities of life like having shelter having food having clothing to protect them from the elements and we're not going to charge them for going to school and and we're certainly not going to to charge them for school lunches these sorts of things are just crazy. But we are going to invest in this child. A credit system. That child is worth this much to society. And so that child's worth, we are going to pay it forward to them to develop them a good quality life. We're going to make sure that they have the funds that are necessary to get a quality education, to get food, to get shelter, get all the things that they need to be able to live a solid, thriving, quality life. Because we know that that's going to give them the best advantage moving forward. And how this benefits in the educational sense, schools can be kind of like how a college, you know, recruits people or an employer recruits people. Um, because they want to have certain types of people with certain types of skill sets and certain types of potentialities and certain amount of credits that they can access. And so that student goes to this school and that school can access those credits that, that, that represent that student, right? And then that school can use that money to pay for their facilities, be able to pay for their educators, and, and it would be in the sense of, of equality. And now the value of the child does not change. It doesn't increase. We're not we're not giving them a, a, a monetary you know price sticker, but it's saying that this is how the government money that is set aside for education can be accessed is by by providing quality education to the student. 
and this incentivizes communities, incentivizes school districts, incentivizes teachers, incentivizes all of these people in, in this outward way to really nurture and care for this child because they are working based off of the value of that child. Not in an exploitive way, but in a way where they're, they're, they're cultivating the child. And, and they're capitalizing on the value of that child and the value that, that society is investing into that child to pay it forward for that child's future. Knowing that in time and through time that that child is eventually going to get to the point where they are a, a positive, constructive contributor and, and participant in society that will be able to take the reins so that they can start investing in the future of other generations. And so we pay it back and we pay it forward, right? When you get to a certain point in life, you start paying back everything that had been given to you in these great opportunities, these opportunities of returns, and, and you invest in the child so that, that they can have returns on the investment, right? They're going to be able to give back to society because you have developed them into something of value, a person of substance. And then you realize that this means that you have to provide children with, with something of value to them to, to keep them to come to school, right? You provide them with extracurricular activities. You provide them with sports to be able to play and chess clubs and robotics clubs and rocket clubs and, and healthcare clubs and nursing clubs and science clubs and math clubs and debate clubs and, and, and all of these great clubs that children can be involved in. And through those clubs, they learn to utilize the core skills that are developed in the classroom such skills as critical thinking which is number one and should be taught at every age level and 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 practice and utilize over and over again drumming into people the processes of critical thinking because that helps them in every regard really truly cultivating a deep understanding of the language of mathematics and all of its beauty because if you understand the language of mathematics, you truly do understand the universe. Develop a, a, a deep relationship with physics and, and the sciences and cultivate an interest for, for children to, to access pathways of, of interest and, and, and to really try and, and strive and, and see if that's what they want. Let them cultivate their interests. School should be something similar to placing a problem in front of a child and letting them solve it by their own terms and conditions. You know, give, give them an idea of, of the sort of end result that might be, you know, desired, but not, not conformed by too many parameters. Just like, you know, don't blow us up, but take this apart and put it back together in a way that, you know, works. And let them use their problem-solving skills, you know, and, and encourage them. And, and don't make it a competition based off of, well, if you don't get this, you're stupid. Don't label or, or, or limit people based off of that. 
but literally just make it fun for them to, to involve themselves in these problem-solving skills. Whether it be to, you know, take a part in an engine or it's to, to dissect a frog or following the neural pathways of, of different sections of the brain and, and how those work. Like, it, you can do this for any number of things and expose children to these different experiences from an early age. Education as it is now is it was based off of the Industrial Revolution of we're crying, trying to create factory workers. And we're going to discern them between blue-collared and white-collared. There's going to be somebody who's going to manage them and somebody's going to do the grunt work. And, and that was good and well and fine. It worked for that time, but we're past that point. Not to say that there aren't going to be people who work with their hands, and then not to say there aren't going to be people who are going to like manage um, in, entire workflow systems, but to say that we can't make one more valuable than the other. They're all valuable. They're all part of the system of, of you know functional economy. We need them all to participate. But what is important, the through line that all of them need to share, is they have to be able to be well educated to understand their surroundings. You know, there's going to be people that have specialties in one way or another that surpass others, but the, the point is not for everybody to know the exact same thing, but to know what they know with, with a, a level of master craftsmanship. And so educating children and, and, and let the investment in education be based off of a credit system that is centrally focused on, on sustaining and maintaining that, that child's education and incentivize them to continuously be educated and to do so in a way that's not forcing conformity, but, but really truly cultivating their, their life experience and let it be a good and positive thing. Um, it, it helps. And so so one way that you can think about this credit system is a, a basic living allowance, right? It pays it forward while you learn. So you earn as you learn. And you earn enough to pay for your schooling and to pay for your living expenses while you go to school. Um, and, and this goes also into the, the realm of um, higher education. So like, uh, uh, you know, bachelor's degrees. So that when you graduate, whether it be high school or from college with a bachelor's degree, um, you do so without any debt. But the thing is, is like we can't like force future generations to to pay for this absorption of the debt. But what could happen is that the individual, after they're done with college, and and they are 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 settled into a career pathway, um, and and they start working and they're making and earning money and and they're paying taxes. Their their tax rate is increased by let's just use the term five percent as as a a payback tax um, that pays back what had been paid forward. And in doing this. You can say, let's say it costs $100,000 for an individual to receive a full bachelor's education um, 
and paying back at the 5% of their uh, income tax um, goes back to pay, pay, it pay back that money that was invested in them and paid forward to them. Um, over a certain amount of time, they would eventually have that, you know, paid off. But then you come into, like, there's ways to even reduce that amount. Whereas right now, there really is no way. There's no forgiveness of student loan debt. But in this way, it kind of would be. And it's not necessarily forgiveness, but it's a way to credit the system so that you end up paying less in the end. So um, this would be, uh, you know, the student uh, basic living allowance, the SBLA, is... Uh, A way for students to pay back and pay forward. Um, it allows colleges to still be for profit, but also, you know, kind of keeps a cap on it and makes the government say, all right, you know, don't, don't get fucking crazy about this, you know. Um, so the government's justified in, in keeping things in check within reason as far as like the cost of, of um, tuition and, and things like that. Um, but students are given an incentive to graduate, to stick it through, because um, so long as they continue to go to school, they continue to have, you know, this living expenses paid for, and they continue to have their education paid for. And then when they get out of school, as they earn, they they pay it back. So if they're not working, they're, they're not paying it back, you know? Um, it's just kind of sits there in reserve, waiting for you to, to earn money to be able to pay it back. Um, but there's no debt that happens that prevents you from being able to access other forms of credit. You know, it's not a, something that becomes bad on you or anything like that. Um, so it gives an incentive for people to become students and to learn, which is, you know, what we would like to do because we want a well-informed and educated society. Um, but it also means that um, there is a way for these people to pay this back reasonably, you know, pay back what's been paid forward. Um, and then, so in the in the case of like um, you know, you access this, you have an increase of five percent of your tax base for um, you know, let's say for ten years. But then you participate in a uh, volunteer give back to your community education program. And the time that you've invested into that earns you credits, you know, like tax incentive credits, that um, while it, you still have to, you know, pay that 5% tax, um, before the final calculation comes through, you have a credit applied to it. And let's say you did this volunteer education and you get a 1% credit increase on that. So now you're only paying truly 4%. Um, but the value, the amount of the loan is still shrinking, you know, you know, the, the, well, it's kind of like a loan is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking in size. Um, just like it would if you were paying the full amount, but you don't actually have to pay the full amount because you've paid it forward in another way that society and the government in the tax structure system says that's a value in this regard and you earn 1% credit for your participation in this program and that credit applies to your overall, you know, balance due sort of thing and reduces your balance owed to the point where you could earn so many credits that, you know, you could just get a return on the taxes that you end up having to pay out. Um, 
and in that case, uh, that's where it's ideal. So that return is basically what we're trying to achieve is that everybody pays t enough taxes in to pay for everything in, in everybody's doing their fair share and they pay the taxes and that there's so much that everybody's earning in taxes and paying forward in taxes through contributions and participations in society um, that we have all of this to tap into that we can invest into more education and we can invest into more innovation which improves the quality of a life through convenience innovations and then invest into our infrastructure which raises, raises the standard of living of all people across the board and then we have this this excess this extra money that would be left over from that and then that can be reincorporated back into um, a, a basic income um, the idea is we should have universal basic income universal basic innovation um, but the innovation comes first and the income is is just like the cherry on the top right so getting into that um, before I get into the innovation part of it, I just want to finish up with the education part where it says that the SBLA, which is the Student Basic Living Allowance, also can be accessed for students who have existing student loan debt. Um, so how it works is that the student loan debt is paid off and the individual assumes this as a, a tax loan, right? So um, they agree that they're going to have an increased rate of like 5% of their taxes that they pay back to the federal government um, for the federal government basically um, bailing out that person's student loan debt. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to the time where they've paid that 5% off um, over the period of years, so let's, it's not like it's 5% until it's done, it's 5% for a a, a distinguished amount of time that would say that it would be paid off in. So it's 5% for 10 years or 5% for 20 years or whatever the case is, um, which can be shrunk down based off of how much of a percentage um, credit that you end up getting. So you still pay it for the 20 years, um, but your tax credits along the way um, make it so that you could, instead of paying 5%, could pay 0% or 4% or whatever. Um, but it's still over that same length of time. And so the government knows they're going to have this consistent amount of tax rate that's going to come back in. It's going to pay off that total amount that you owe. Um, but to you, the overall cost fluctuates and depends based off of how much money you actually earn and how much taxes you actually have to pay and any credits that you may have that would affect that change. But the point is is that your student loans are paid off. And that's that's for the existing, right? That's the that's to solve those you know, we're ending the old way and we gotta uh, you know, fix the old way, you know, all all of those uh, negative trends that occurred up until that point, you know, putting a stop to it, but we have to we have to reverse those negative trends, right? And the way to do that is, is by, by this pathway. And then once that's taken care of, you know, we can proceed forward with this, this new process, which in itself is already um, de so designed to make it so that student loan debt is not, not even a in the realm of possibility. And in, in a few generations, it would cease to exist altogether, right? So that's how we grow and evolve in that regard. Um, 
And the thing about it is, is that this isn't costing the government. This is costing taxpayers. And the more people that are active participants and contributors to society, the people who can actually work within society because they have the skills to be able to work within society and the jobs that we need skilled people to work in, that means that we have more taxes coming in. And the more taxes that come in eventually get to the point where we can give people more returns, which that return is like giving everybody a universal basic income. So moving on from there, that's where I'm coming into the innovation aspect of it. So innovation is lifestyle, convenience, technologies. Innovation empowers individuals to live as self-sufficient, self-sustaining, free and independent people in a ever more healthy, sustainable, just and peaceful society. That's what innovation's intention is, right? Um, so the idea is that universal basic innovation is to give people innovation and then tax them at, at the increased tax rate until that innovation is paid off. So they don't have to you know, wait till they can save up the money and afford the innovation before they can use it and, and benefit from it. They get to get it now, benefit from it now, pay it off over time. Um, and to such a degree that the innovation should be uh, improving their quality of life so much that it actually earns them money to be able to pay it off faster the more they use it, right? That's, that's good innovation right there. And so you're moving the cost of the innovation at, at the price point into the tax end. And what this does is it allows society to share the cost of innovation, which drives down the cost. And it also gets more people to participate. And in this way, the people who are participating and who are, who are paying, they're paying it forward to, to future generations to be able to um, continuously uh, create new iterations of the innovation that are more efficient, more effective, you know, more cost efficient, um, these sorts of things, which that is what leads to progress. And I know when you look in the terms and conditions of economics, you're like, well, how does anybody make a profit off of that? You make a profit not off of maintaining things as they are, but to innovate out of that into something that's better. And, and, and companies really need to be more fluid about that. They need to be able to change and pivot. Pivot. Isn't that the word that everybody uses? Um, pivot so that you can keep up with the times and the demands and the needs of society because guess what? Society is not going to stay the same, especially once we decide that this is, this is a really good pathway and if we just implement that, then change is in, inherent in that system. So what this does, this innovation, it gives people an incentive to work, right? Because the rewards and opportunities that are incentivized by this program of if you work and you make an income and you pay taxes, then you have access to be able to get this innovation, which will improve the quality of your life, which will further convenience your life. So you have more time to have happiness and more time to work and more time to earn money to be able to pay this back. So that eventually there will come a point in time where you're not indebted to any system of owing anything for having this innovation, but you are free and clear and you are able to, if you want, invest, reinvest, you know, recycle that old innovation and then purchase a new one and continuously grow and evolve to become 
the best version and, and to get the, the latest thing. It's kind of like the iPhone, right? Like It's like you get to trade in your old iPhone and get a credit for that and then be able to move up to get another iPhone, but it's not going to cost you immediate money out of your pocket. It's just going to cost you a committed time and energy as, to work a job and pay taxes so that you can access this type of, of positive credit, right? And the more people that work, the more taxes we get, the more society has this fluid money to be able to spend to invest in the things that should matter to us. And then we no longer have to worry about arguing and fighting about how much of the piece of the pie is going to go to this, that, or whatever. It's like we have to cut military in order to afford health care. We have to afford social, uh, you know, uh, sacrifice social security so that we can afford a border wall. Like none of those divisions would even matter because there would be enough to go around for all of that because more people would be empowered and capacitated to be able to work, not only because of the fact that we've created an, an education system that so helps people to be prepared to work, but also in a program of economics which incentivizes people to participate in that. Then we go into the idea of how this will impact positively our economic system. The problem with it today is that our, our economic system is overburdening employers um, to sustain living wages for its employees. And that just doesn't work. Now granted, I know that there's some tie-up corporations that are paying disgusting amounts of money to their high-end executives while they're paying pennies to their, you know, everyday blue-collared employees. Totally get that. Don't agree with it at all. But the problem is, is that we cannot force those people into the same moral value system that we have that says, like, you should probably pay your employees. You know, they're the whole reason why you work, you function, you know, as a business. Um, especially because you can't cookie cutter and blanket it over because small businesses can't, can't necessarily afford to function and operate and pay that living wage. And what is a living wage except for enough money to pay for the expenses of life? The problem is life is expensive. The more the cost of living goes up, the more that the pay rate has to increase. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're getting more productivity out of these people. Sure, in a lot of regards, especially with the smaller companies, in order to save money, they're going to have to increase the demand that's put on the employees. So now they have to work 60 hours a week, making the same amount of money, because that's all that the, the company can afford based off of their profit structures. But now it's putting more demand on the individual. And, and that's no quality of life. And so it's burdening the system. It's burdening the people. It's burdening the employers. And, you know, minimum wage at one point in time was a, a important system. Because it was one way to be able to approach a, a means of saying you can't force people into slavery. But the fact of the matter is, is that you need to work and if you don't work you're not living and so we're kind of forced into slavery we have to work we have no choice but to work and so our employers you know kind of take advantage of that and they exploit that that known variable and and they use it to their advantage and so they can get away with stupid shit like not paying you enough money for the work that you do so taking away that capacity for them to manipulate that system by in, uh, empowering individuals to be able to afford to live on their own, you know, be self-sufficient, self-sustaining, free and independent people, it makes it so that there's, ex exploiting them is no longer an opportunity. It's no longer an option on the table because you, you can't, 
you can't treat these people like fucking shit and expect them to work their fucking asses off like goddamn fucking slaves and expect to get every ounce of fucking everything out of them and then and then when you're done with them just throw them off to the fucking side like they don't mean shit and their whole lives are fucking destroyed because of it and they're fucking dependent on you for fucking survival and if they lose their job they lose fucking everything fuck that i hate the fact that that system even exists it shouldn't even exist that puts people in, in constant fear and stress out mode, and, and it gives nobody a basis of fucking, you know, like, s safety net whatsoever within society. It's, we're all fucked all the time. It, it, we're all one, one, you know, accident away from our entire world being totally fucking thrown upside down. And I don't feel that society is, is, that's the proper intended use of society. It's not. So... Society should be making sure that everybody has the basic needs for survival and so that when they work, it's a choice to work. And we already know that people are going to want to work. Why? Because we incentivized it. Working means that you can be educated. And working means that you can get the innovations that you need that's going to further convenience your life and give you more time to be able to have pleasure. And working is how we pay it forward so that we can develop the infrastructure that will help us to become a better society. And working is going to help us to be able to improve the environment and reverse negative trends. And working, it gives you a meaning and purpose in life and something to apply yourself to and build your skills and abilities and help to identify who you are as an individual. And working helps you to become a healer of yourself, others, and society in general. Like, working is a good thing. But nobody wants to just work like a slave. They want to have a job. They want to have something that they do and for a reason to do it. And they want to know that they're being justly compensated for their time, valued time and attention. Because time and attention is valuable. And so the time and attention should be paid as a collective society. Not put on employers because there's no way to control their value system. We can regulate them. We can say you can't be a business if you're going to be a piece of shit. Sure, we can do all those things. But in the inner workings of a company, we cannot conform them to, to give a fuck, basically, about people. Sure, there are employers that do, and more power to them, and they're great. But there are also employers that don't give a fuck. And a lot of that is the reason why we have such cheap products and services. So it's a catch-22 in, in that sense. I'm like, well, you got to give up one or the other. But in this sense, you don't have to. If there's a way to be able to provide people the, the basic necessities of life through basic universal innovation that helps to you know, secure their survivability, then cost of living can be maintained by the innovations. That, that, that's how people can maintain the affordability of the cost of living. And um, the increased infrastructure, which also includes, you know, community services that are available to individuals, um, helps to provide for the needs of the individual. So no longer puts it on the employer to have to, to afford this. But then it also makes it so that, wow, well, this, ind this individual is well-educated. They have, you know, every security that is necessary provided through the innovations that they have. They want to work, they're willing to work because there's incentive in place and, and they're going to want to do a good job because that's what helps to give them fulfilling and purpose in life. And they're going to want to invest, in, especially in a company, if they believe in the company. And so now the company can focus on hiring the people who best fit the position. And the company can focus on, on providing the just compensation, but at the same time providing a worthwhile, valuable, prof 
product or service to, to, to provide for society that keeps the cost of, of, of consumerism down, which in turn reduces the cost of living for the individuals, which is being supplemented by this innovation, which is being um, invested in through the collective system of our taxation processes. Um, it, 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 it ends up being like this just constant flow of investments. Like, you know, I depend on you and you depend on me and then we all give each other, you know, um, mutual securities. And so the, the, the cost of living is governed by the individual, which is empowered by innovation, which reduces the, the demands of, of surviving and empowers the capacity to thrive. And this is a group investment based off of um, what we understand as the taxation system. And so the, the, the main focus of what innovation should achieve is wellness care, sustainable utilities, sustainable housing, sustainable transport, and then the concept of like healthcare that is that's taxed on on the end of um, an increased rate of tax, but it's reduced with a tax credit based off of the wellness care that the individual uses. So for instance, uh, I tap into the wellness care of um, the innovation of being of um, an exercise machine. And that ensures I have uh, physical wellness and, and that earns me a 1% credit on my taxes, which uh, in my taxes, I'm taxed a 5% to cover my healthcare expenses, but that 1% of wellness care drops it down to really only 4% now, right? And then I have an extra level of, of you know, credit that's added on top of it because I have adequate nutrition and that gives me a percentage increase and, and you know, reduces what my overall cost of healthcare is. And in the end result, what this is going to do is that the more people utilize wellness care, the less healthcare that they need, right? Um, so that reduces the overall cost of what the health healthcare cost would be on the end of the, the pay provider, which would be the, the federal government who's paying for that system. And I know this sounds like socialism, but it's not. What it is, is it's, it's a, a collective capitalistic consumerism. You know, Con what consumers buy in time will become what society is. So it's, it's really empowering this beautiful system of capitalism into its proper intended use. So when we move into, you know, the idea of what some of those innovations might look like, for instance, like a solar panel, um, you impart the lifestyle convenience product of solar energy, um, which, you know, taps into the power of the infinite sun and processes it into energy that you can use in your house um, that, you know, doesn't require a bunch of power lines outside that are in constant threat of the natural disasters taking it out. Um, and you give the person the innovation, you tax them at a 10% rate for, let's say, four years. Um, but you can use care credits, um, such as, like, the, the credits that increased for your 
your housing or your sustainable utilities. Um, so uh, you're taxed the 10% to pay for the solar panels, but then you receive a 2% sustainable utilities tax credit. So, or let's say 5% uh, sustainable utilities tax credit. Uh, because you're using sustainable utilities, you get that 5% tax credit. So it costs you 10% to get the solar panels for four years, but you get a 5% tax credit. And that, so long as you continue to use the panels, you continue to get that tax credit. So after the four years, uh, you're done paying the 10%, you're still getting that 5% tax credit back, right? Which can go towards reducing the tax rate of, of other factors within your overall tax base. So you're still paying off the, the loan for the panels over this period of time, but the loan amount is reduced by that, that credit amount uh, due to par the participation in one of the incentivized programs, the Sustainable Utility um, Tax Credit programs. So kind of in a sense, like if you do it that way and you're paying 10% for those panels and you're using it for four years, and so you're going to have 5% tax credit for all four of those years, basically your four-year loan to pay for the tax uh, uh, tax loan for your solar panels is reduced to really only um, as if you're only paying it for two years in, in the terms of the four years of participation. Um, it basically is it's cutting the cost in half um, and gets you faster to independence where you're no longer paying for the innovation, but you're still earning a return on the investment of purchasing the innovation. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, the added bonus is that you achieve a sustainable energy and you add in the fact that you have um, a sustainable uh, utility system which reduces your cost of living um, and you have an increased tax credit which means that you can now afford to invest in other innovations um, which could lead into things like sustainable transport you know like EV credits as it stands now, uh, you can get like $7,500 uh, tax credit for purchasing an EV vehicle. Same kind of thing. But in this case, like you could also uh, pay, pay tax base to purchase that electric vehicle. And then using it, you get the tax credit. So it's not a credit to buy it, but it's a credit to use it. And that's what we want people to do, right? We don't want them just to buy shit and not use it. We want them to buy the sustainable innovations and utilize the sustainable innovations because the more that they use it, the, the more it recoups the cost of the purchase for it, which then at one point in time converts into nothing but straight return on the investment, right? These constant credits that are coming in because you're continuously using it. And the longevity of the product then becomes a key factor in the determination of value because what you're doing is the over the life of the loan, the, the product itself is carrying the weight of how many years of credit you're going to be able to benefit from utilizing that in the future. That's sustainability. That's true investment. That leads us into the fact that there will eventually become a point in time where that person is not paying the 10% to be able to get to their solar panels, right? So that's going to be less taxes that are going into the pot of, of the collective taxes that we use to invest in, in education, innovation, and infrastructure, right? So it seems like there's going to be a point in time where we're just not going to have enough money or we're going to run out. But the thing is we don't because we continuously allow this, this um, 
you know, loan line of credit system um, that incentivizes people to continuously um, invest in new iterations of innovation, which then pushes innovation, doesn't it? It pushes companies to develop new technologies and to improve upon existing technologies. Like we take, for instance, a Tesla vehicle. The, the, the value of that is not just in the longevity of, of the product itself, but the fact that over-the-air updates increase the value of in the, the, the user capacity and, and, and the, uh, the abilities of that product to incorporate lifestyle convenience into the life of the user, that that's a, that's a value that carries over to the point that it becomes exponentially uh, more uh, liberating for the person, right? which grants them the capacity to take risks for higher things. Because that capacity is, is a form of, of security. It is that social mutual security. And we're all investing in each other, like climbing that ladder and, and, and to invest in this innovation to help us to grow and to develop this innovation, make it better and, and grow in iterations and continuously build ourselves up to the best version of innovation, the best version of ourselves and our best version of our capacity to live and utilize that innovation to the best of its ability so it actually does make a difference and positively in our lives. So there's that. <laughs> and then we move into infrastructure, which infrastructure not only means like roads and bridges or railway systems or, you know, uh, brick and mortar buildings or um, housing, um, or you know retail shops these sorts of things it, or even like the innovations themselves that's part of the infrastructure as well but we're also talking about natural resources that's part of our infrastructure as well our water systems um you know our water sewage and treatment centers um talking about clean air um our our energy systems our fuel systems um but the also like the social construct systems. Um, for instance, uh, law is a form of infrastructure, right? The, the legal system helps to you know, kind of so tie the binds and hold us all together because that's our mutual agreement, right? To um, pledge our life, our liberties and our, our wealth and you know, ourselves to one another in, in, in this mutual agreement of we are a society and this is how society functions together, that sort of thing. So, you know, legal aspects, that's, that's one branch of infrastructure as well as, as political because, you know, we have to be able to conceptualize these concepts of like um, how we're going to be growing and developing as as a society. What is society valuing? That's really what politics is about. And 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 legal system is interpreting our value in a case by case basis, right? Um, so that's super important. Um, and and then in the environmental aspect, society needs now more than ever, and they really need to invest in this with like supreme commitment and, and, and importance an environmental military. And this would consist of service members who protect nature and thus ourselves. And what it does is it, in, 
it ensures that we include nature in, in every decision and in, in every consideration. That we create plans and, and, and function on timetables and, and incorporate investments and we discern valuations based off of environmental preservation because we are dependent on the environments that we live in. That's a determining factor for all other considerations. Without a proper working environment that, that can sustain our natural resources that we use, we have no economics by which we can build off of that. And we are very dependent on that as a people. We would have no capacity to continue our wellness care. We would have no fresh air. We would pollute ourselves. We would have no clean water to drink. We would have no food to eat if we don't take care of the environment. And it's, the environment isn't just the plants and the trees and the waterways and the air we breathe, but also the animals. Life above water, life below water, the air, the land, the sea, the ecosystems that are all interdependent in this in intricate forms. All of those things we are relying upon and independent upon. Nothing is independent from the environment. We are products of our environment. So thus we need to take responsibility and extreme ownership of ensuring that we have a healthy environment. And so much like we have the Air Force and we have the Navy and we have the Marines and we have the army and we have the infantry and and we have the CPs and we have Special forces and we have the space force We need an environmental military Now, I don't know if that is really the best name I'm sure we can come up with a really cool name for it that really just embodies what it's supposed to be but, you know, that's it. That's there. That's what it is. It, it, its proper intended use will be to preserve, protect, and defend the environment. And then just to touch on real quick uh, the idea that I was saying about criminal justice and how important that is to our infrastructure as well, which leads to our education, innovation, and liberation. Um, criminal justice reform should really be based on education and it really needs to be a reform um, not a reform of the system itself just in itself but also a reform of the people who are a part of that system uh, justice the only justice that exists is where people are granted the opportunity of return right that 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 forgiveness to understand that that we all make mistakes so long as we're willing to learn from them then we are allowed to grow and we are allowed to return back into the sense of, of belonging in the world. You know, we fall from grace, but we shall always have the opportunity to return. And um, so what this is saying is that uh, criminal justice should be based on education. You know, uh, confine people to a sense where they, they really have to supremely focus on on relearning the value system of society and relearning themselves and who they are so they can come to terms with the capacity to be able to have a bit of self-control, right? And, and, 
and that, when you learn those valuable lessons, leads to the potential for someone to be released and to pay their, their recompense. You know, you can be released and you can go back to work and then you can pay an increase of your taxes for a period of time, which would be like your sentence, to, to pay back what, what you took away from society and its value system. Um, not creating an, an indentured servitude or not creating an, a, 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 a debtor's prison sort of thing, but to say that you know, we all have to pay forward for the, the value that we take and, then, and, and that we get from society. And the opportunity of return is a value that society is investing to allow for everybody to have this as an opportunity. So, um, you know, somebody who commits a crime should have the opportunity for return and forgiveness um, by way of educating themselves, which leads them to the potential and to the point of release, which leads them to the... Um, to the point of recompense, which then leads them to the point of actual liberation, to be freed from that past and no longer stigmatized by it. Now I understand that there are violent criminals in the world, and there are some people that by whatever element of, of spiritual disorder that they are overcome by, that they cannot be granted access back into society. That there are violent criminals that need to remain contained. But it is more important than ever for those people to receive education. An education about themselves, about each other, about society, about the value systems of society. And, and, and given more liberty to learn more about that so that they can truly fully understand what they have missed out on and what they're going to continue to miss out on because of the fact that they made this terrible, terrible choice. And in that, there's potential for opportunity of return to the point where they can forgive themselves, thus forgive others, and, and then to be able to live and die in peace. And, and I understand that there are people who want to hold grudges and not forgive, and they, they want an eye for an eye, and they want people to, to suffer as they have suffered. But by not forgiving those people and just letting it go, you're forcing yourself into victimhood, which is not good for you. It's not good for anybody to continue to do that. And I don't believe that the death penalty is at all a solution. I, I know that it is a problem, and it's one that society is going to be stigmatized by so long as we continue to allow those things to happen. It's not our way, and we need to return back to the, the universal consciousness that we are all united, we are all connected, and we are all interdependent on one another. Even those people who are, are, are terrible are necessary, right? We all learn from each other. So I believe that even the violent criminals and those who have made the most horrendous offenses uh, must be granted education to give them more liberty to become more understanding citizens and, and even still productive, though they are confined and isolated. It gives them a way back, right? Opportunity of return, but without release. And in that, that that's the punishment. It really is. And, and, and I don't even consider it punishment. I, I consider it discipline. It's disciplining the person to know what is forever out of their reach. But for them to still accept, I want to understand the reaches of humanity 
so that perhaps my mistake can teach others to not follow in my footsteps. And in that way, they will have recompense. They will be able to teach society from their lessons. Rather than being a hardened criminal, going crazy, being locked up in a cage somewhere, you're literally, truly giving them a, another version of life. An opportunity for return, forgiveness. These things are important. And then, of course, probably my favorite one, and I don't have much time for it, so I'm going to wrap it up pretty sweet, short, and simple. Um, marijuana needs to be legalized, as well as hemp, and we need to uh, do hemp for victory, just like we did in World War II. And we need to start use, using that as the most vital resource by which we can create uh, innovations and help to reduce our uh, ecological burdens. Hemp is a beautiful crop. It can be used for many different things, and it's also nurturing to the earth. Um, marijuana is a uh, healer and it is a way for people to align and entune themselves energetically within the frequencies of the positive well-being and it helps us to be better versions of ourselves. Um, legalize it, tax it at 14%, use that money to reverse the effects of criminalization from the past um, until we can redeem the time and that's no longer a part of our process and then it will also pay forward for our wellness care um, which invests in nutrition, exercise, and respite care for individuals and then also um, after the criminalizations have been fixed we use it to improve the environment um, so we reverse the negative trends, uh, repair the environment, invest in wellness care and then uh, a small portion of it for regulation to ensure that people People are staying within the bounds of what would be considered proper intended use of um, society and to keep us within that mutual security and that mutual agreement for mutual successes so that we can all uh, live better lives. Um, understanding that anything and everything has a potential to be abused. And the idea is that the only way to prevent abuse is to inform and educate. And so everything needs to be a public service announcement to let people know, yes, this is something that you can do however you need to use it within reason, you know, and, and within uh, anything in excess is a bad thing. So use it in moderation. Um, marijuana has potential to improve the state and well-being of the world, whereas alcohol, which is legalized, has negative effects. It, it's a downer. and It has negative effects on the body, it has negative effects on the social aspects, people can't control themselves when they're on it, it turns people into aggressors and, and they become dangerous when they get behind a wheel and people lose their sense of judgment, whereas marijuana actually opens up the receptors for people to reach those higher levels of consciousness and tap into that universal understanding. So it would help us to become a better version of ourselves, a better version of society, and help us to be able to conceptualize all the things that I've just been explaining throughout this entire process in terms in, in, uh, of understanding, I guess, embracing that universal language that we all access through higher consciousness, which that brings us to. Um, yeah. So that's that. Obviously, plenty more things to say, many more things that have to be incorporated into that, but those are the base fundamentals of what I think are necessary in order for there to be an effective presidential leadership. So that's my presidential manifesto. Um, there's more to come on that, but for now, that's a good starting point. So thank you for your valuable time and attention. Be well.